Hello again. Thanks for joining. This is episode 43 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today I've got a good one. My guest is architect Brian Silva. Nowadays, with just about everybody in the golf design business jumping into the remodel game, it's easy to forget that historic renovation and restoration used to be a specialized niche in the industry. 25 years ago, or even longer, restoration was the domain of just a handful of people who comprised the first generation of designers and historians that took seriously the research and study of pre-depression courses, developed a nuanced understanding of what was originally built, and worked with clubs to reclaim lost architectural features. Among this small pioneering group of architects, which includes Ron Force, Feed the Ball Episode 31, Bruce Hepner, Episode 38, and Ron Pritchard, Episode 5, was Brian Silva. Silva, in particular, developed his own subgenre of restoration by homing in specifically to the work of the great design triumvirate of C.B. McDonald, Seth Rayner, and Charles Banks. Initially working for legendary New England architect Jeffrey Cornish, Silva began his career building courses common to the 1970s and 80s, that is, narrow, affordable, and functional. After a number of years, he had what can only be termed as an awakening. Quite by happenstance, the brilliant but nearly forgotten principles of classical Golden Age architecture flooded over him, washing away almost everything he previously thought he knew about golf design. When Silva speaks of this, as he does eloquently in the course of this talk, it is the story of the converted, the wanderer who becomes suddenly, purposefully redirected toward a new destiny. Shortly after this awakening, he began consulting with clubs, delving into their forgotten pasts and helping them to recapture forgotten strategies and angles of play. Since then, he's helped restore dozens of prominent old golf properties across the U.S. And today, it's fair to say, and I am going to say it right now, that no architect has done more to resurrect, propagate, and showcase the work and thinking of Seth Rayner than Brian Silva has. Silva's also built a roster of acclaimed original courses, notably Black Rock south of Boston, and Black Creek, a fascinating Rainer template hole-inspired design in Chattanooga, which we get into in detail toward the end of this talk. Brian, as you'll hear, overflows with passion and modesty. He's an utterly delightful and, and endearing man and an incredible conversationalist. You, you could start talking about checkers with him, and the discussion would still be going on two hours later. We kept it a golf Mostly, I think, but I don't know. It went by so fast. Our connection cut out for a moment at one point late in the conversation, so apologies for that. But I don't think we lost much. Uh, This was a real treat, and I believe you'll think so too, because there aren't many better ways to spend a couple of hours than to talk shop with Brian Silva. So where are you right now? I hope you're not up in the Northeast where it's no, like 30 below zero. Uh, I'm at Amelia Island, uh, north of Jacksonville. Sure. We sneak down here around the 1st of November and then uh, go back north around uh, the middle of April or so. Uh, that's a great area. I've been down there quite a bit. Uh, do you play golf when you're there? I played golf two times last summer. So when I get down here, I try to play or hit balls every day. And I don't That's quite good. do that, but I would say I have a golf club five days a week, which is great. And I'm stunned. I've become a ball banger. If I have a choice between playing sometimes or just hitting balls for an hour and a half, I'll hit balls. Is that new for you? It is very new. 
So you still you still care about your score then? I guess you're you're no, working on I some do, things. No, I do, but I really. Um, I used to have a slap shot. I played hockey. I had a slap shot swing. You know, it didn't even go halfway. And two or three years ago, there was a fellow here named Ed Bo, who's really an excellent teacher. And I, it was the first lesson I'd taken in my life. Mm-hmm. And I said, Ed, I, I want to get a real golf swing. And he gave me one drill. And he told me, you know, this can take six months for you to get comfortable with this. And Ed didn't know how anal I can be. <laughs> I was hitting balls three times a day for 20 minutes each time. And I went to see him a week and a half later. And he said, I cannot believe how quick you have this. And I said, well, I, I wanted to do it. So ever since I've done that, I've really been more of, of a guy to hit balls. Uh, and a lot of my rounds, we can't walk here till one or two in the afternoon, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 99% of my rounds are walking. As and, it should be. Yeah. I mean, I just don't, I'll take a card a couple times a year when it's an event, but, and I don't mean to sound like, you know, to do all the classic things. The only architect, good architect is a dead architect. You can't, you don't really get the feel unless you walk. But yeah. um, one of those is extremely true. And one of them is partially true. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one that's completely true is about the dead architects, right? <laughs> oh, I thought the walking. I just, yeah, right. I just don't get how they. Maybe I will when I become even older and more decrepit. But I just don't see how it's fun not seeing the whole golf course and you know walking on to the green, sort of in the relative direction that your shot approached the green and stuff. Mm-hmm. I just. No wonder they can't read greeds and stuff like that. I- well, one of the the best joys of golf to me is walking up the walking up the front of a green, and you don't do yes. that in a car. You hardly ever do that in a car. But that's it's such a simple thing, but it's it's so rewarding. It makes you it just it connects you to the hole so much better. One of my favorite favorite things is there's about a dozen guys who are religious walkers. We'll get on a green, and one of them will say, "Which way do you think the grain is going?" And after that gets asked a couple times, I can't take it anymore. And I just blurt out, what the F is it about the grain? <laughs> you need to learn how to read a green, the slopes and stuff. Yeah, because when the grain moves it like a half inch, you know, on a, on no, a straight No, you know what butt. I mean? And, and, and they shouldn't even be worried about that because they can't find the grain anyway. Yeah. And so... After all those tears. I said, look at, from 100 yards in, you should be halfway through your green reading because you can see the slopes and pitches and stuffs in the greens and you know they all have the same thing we have a couple holes that are on the ocean and they say well the greens got to pitch towards the ocean well neither of the greens pitch towards the ocean so (laughs) even the guys who walk are not could take their walking to greater advantage you know than they do now I'll hear them whispering and they're talking about the grain because they don't want me to scream at them. <laughs> <laughs> I've played with people who who try to do that as well and they can never figure out the the grain. Sometimes it's just as easy as just looking at the color of the grass, uh, you know, depending on the golf course that you're on, but No, one thing that's, that's great simplest thing. in the ult- the ultra dwarfs actually lay one way or another whether they're going uphill or downhill. And and um, that's helpful. But again, I agree, 
I agree completely with you that that um, the grain is like uh, two or three percent of the reed. It, right. It's the fine tuning of the reed. Yeah. And and these these guys are not even trying to if figure out be, what the slope yeah, does. If you're going to be all over the cup with your putt, no matter what, that grain might have an influence right when it gets there. But you know, for the rest of us, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. So you you like to get out and, and hit golf balls. I've got to ask you, because I've gotten into this really the last couple of years, too, where I'm the same way. I almost, I, I get a lot of satisfaction for the first time in my life out of hitting range balls and kind of working on little things and seeing the result, but it never carries over to the golf course because I don't play that often. Does it, Have you been able to use uh, your, your driving range swing effectively during your rounds? Uh, I would say... Um uh, maybe uh, 75% effectively. That's pretty uh, good. You know, I go out and walk a lot of times, like it gets dark at six o'clock right now. I go over to the golf course at 4.15. I hit balls for 15 minutes and then I go out. So right when I finish the ninth hole, it's almost dark. I'm a hermit. I just love getting out there and walking. The go- and it's beautiful. There's salt marshes and beautiful live oaks and stuff like that. And if I just play by myself, I'm, I'm, I'm more contented than I should be in mm-hmm. my antisocial way. And it's so funny. I got a retired uh, uh, a fighter pilot, a commercial airplane pilot that I walk with a lot. Well, he said he'd be here at 4 yesterday. I was there at 4. He wasn't, he wasn't there by 4.01. This is kind of the patience level I have. I went off the first tee. Yeah. And I get to the um, – I'm coming down the um, – uh, sixth hole, and I see him on the fourth hole. He was just five minutes late. So I run <laughs> over and play with him. I was crushing it. I was fucking killing it. Yeah. And then I get on the tee with him, and I dub him. It's just... Yep. Yeah. I, no, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. You get in a rhythm. You're you're probably a, in, normally a field player, and you're just, you're kind of into your, into the, your, your body, you're synced up, you're relaxed. Yeah, let me tell you, I know nothing about the swing. You know, I hear guys say, oh, you got to cup your wrist, you got to do this. I do know a little bit about it. Like, I know this. I played with the general manager at Augusta Country Club, Brett, the, uh, on opening day, mm-hmm. and he would just walk up to the ball and he wouldn't take a practice swing. And... Or he would take a practice swing, and then he would take the most. His regular swing was 500 times faster, just wild. And I said, Brett, I said, I don't, I don't like when people give me advice on my swing because it messes me <laughs> up. But I said, take two practice swings and then try to swing like that. Well, when he did that, he's a big kid. He was hitting at 270, 280. He was hitting him right down the middle. Yeah. And I, I kind of know little things like that, but I know, I know nothing about the swing. I know what my guy has told me to try to do and that, you know, and that's about it. But now that you're telling me you like going to the range, the, my favorite time to go to the range is it gets dark around six and nobody's hitting balls much after five o'clock. I'll go at five o'clock and we have a double ended range. I'll go down the far end and I'll hit balls for 15 minutes. And if for 15 minutes, no one's on the other tee, I then take one iron and just go out to the range fairway and hit balls wherever I find them. Cool. And I'm going to tell you something. I have the most fun doing that that you can have with your clothes on. I'm, it's just <laughs> awesome. And I'll just, you know, I'll hit this. That's what I've started doing instead of going completely through my bag. And it's helped me a lot is I'll hit what I call representative clubs. I'll hit my driver. I'll hit one of my fairway woods. I'll hit one of my hybrids. 
and I'll pick one of my irons. So like this afternoon, I'll, I'll do that same thing. And then I'll grab my six iron and I'll just hit 50 or 60 six irons as I find them. And boy, I, it's so much fun. Yeah. So just so see what I'll do is I'll go, I'll go to the range and I'll, I'll just kind of, you know, hit my stock shots and work on this. And, and then I'll try to take like a, a six iron and see how far I can cut it or, or try to see how much I can hook a shot or hit it low and hit punch shots with four and five irons. And the, and that's really fun to do. But the problem is when I'm on a golf course playing, I never have the confidence or I never think about trying to play shots like that. Everything I come up on is, is it's, it's 155 no, yards. I'm going to try to bash even, this eight yeah. iron up in the air. The only one I practice like that is I'll practice kind of knocking down a shot under the wind. And two or three years ago, I, I would always hit a half a dozen or a dozen like that. And I went to Scotland with a buddy and we were in a par three and the wind was just blowing its ass off. And he saw me take this funny stance, and then I knocked knock one down. It didn't get off the ground 10 feet, and it ended up like five feet from the pin. And I've never been able to reproduce that. Right. <laughs> See, that's how my game is. You know, I'm like a 10. I'm a tip. I consider myself typical. I just think about it a little bit. I think of 18 handicaps, just thought about it a little bit. And if they, if they hit fade 99, uh, no, excuse me, if they hit fade 110% of all their shots, I can't take it after three or four holes. If the guy's a friend of mine, I'll just say to him, will you please set up on the right side of the tee yeah. and aim down? They don't even think of that. Yeah, and, they and, just swing and, and, and that cut day, across it. Yeah, that day they hit, well, they still cut across it, but they give themselves a 40-yard wide, wide fairway now instead of a 15 or 20 by aiming down the middle. And that day they mm-hmm. hit 10, yeah, 10 fairways and they're going nuts. The next day we play again, they're back to the middle of the team <laughs> marker. So I at least think of that. I'm like a, I'm like a 10. Derek, I've had three balls in my life with spin on them, with back spin on them. Uh-huh. I can remember the course, the hole, and almost what year it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like most of us. <laughs> You know, you, yeah, that's what you do on the range. You, you, I, you know, you spend all your time just trying to hit those like a super high spinning, you know, backspin perfect, you know, PJ Tour shots, and you, it's just a waste of time. No, listen, I'm going for slightly lower goals, as Mister Cornish, who start, who helped me get started uh, in in design, uh, took me on. He said, uh, our corporate goal is we set our sights low and then fail to live up to them. And that's <laughs> what I have when I'm hitting balls. I want to get it airborne. You're right. You right. know, and it, it, it does go better than that. Right. But, uh, oh, I'm going to tell you, in the afternoon when I go and hit balls by myself and then go out on the range, it is the greatest. And it has just hitting one club 50 or 60 times in rapid succession, but always taken two practice swings, uh, has really helped my irons dramatically. I'm hitting them way up in the air now, which I like. Uh, so it's been very, That's very important. helpful. Yeah. Well, those golf courses that you play, I know there's a little bit of contention going on with uh, the resort closed the Ocean Links course there, which even though it was a you know terrible routing, it was just it was cut up and spread out all over the place. But the holes themselves were really good. I like that course the best overall. Um, are you upset about that? Even though they might reopen it, was that? Did you have any input or reaction to when they just kind of came in overnight and shut that thing disgusting. down? I think it was disgusting. I think you see um, the way this place used to be, Derek. It used to be 27 holes by Pete Dye. Right. There were three nines. You played uh, 
There was Ocean Links, there was Oak Marsh and Oyster Bay. And see, for three years, I taught at Lake City Community College, uh, the college that used to have a turf program for superintendents. And um, so I was an hour and a half from here. So like during final exams week, we'd call Ron Hill, who was a superintendent, and figure out what the what the deal was that day. Some days you'd start on Ocean Links and go to Oyster Bay. Some days you'd go to Oyster Bay and then go to Oak Marsh. And see, I like the Oak Marsh course because um, the holes on the ocean, the fir- um, you play three holes and then you go across to the ocean when you play Ocean Links, and then you play three holes. Well, those holes used to be two par fours and one par three, and they put a board walk in and converted one of the par fours to a par three. And that just turned me off on it. And I will never get over. I I used to eat at the at the Omni restaurants. I won't go there anymore. <laughs> they closed uh, nine holes of the Ocean Links as Pete Dye. Yes. And if I had my way, now uh, it's gone to court. The court has said that Omni has to restore the 18 holes. And I get asked all the time by guys I play with. And the, the president of the club finally asked me my opinion. I said, if I was you, this is what I'd do. I'd tell Omni to give you the original Pete Dye 9, and we would have that 9 again in our rotation of courses. I loved it because the other 9 is so broken up. And That's so, the, Are you talking about the 9 that Bobby Weed added? Yes, and I'm not, yeah. and I'm not being critical of Bobby. No, he's Bobby, another Lake, isn't he another Lake City guy? Yes, he is. He did as good a job as could have been done on the terrible broken up ride a cart for five minutes and then play a golf hole that's on half the acreage it should be. And then, yeah. you know what I mean? And so I, I don't, I, in fact, I, I got a call the other day from the president about, you know, we're saying the res- restoration is going to cost this much. Omni is saying this much. And he said, we need, a, we need another opinion. And I said, well, well, look, first of all, we should have said something to the judge the minute the decision came down. His decision said, restore the course to its previous condition. Well, its previous condition was a dump. <laughs> and so the, the club is asking the superintendent, who's a really good guy, and he's saying, well, you got to core out and rebuild the greens to USG specs. That, that's not the previous condition. And I've said to them, there's one guy and one guy alone you should be asking this. Bobby knows this property. He literally grew up on this property. He was really good friends with Ron Hill, who was the original superintendent and was a superintendent here for decades. They should be saying to Bobby, what? Because really, the judge has set the parameters. And mm-hmm. and even though there are people here who are happy about, I'm using the air quotes, winning the case, sometimes I don't think we won it when it said put the course back to its previous condition because this was a self-fulfilling prophecy that Omni did. The place was a dump. If it got $35 of maintenance a year, I would be surprised. And and they said, well, you know, you people said that you'd, there'd be 10,000 rounds from your members. We only had 3,000. And really, it, it, it again was very much a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'll get off of this in a second. But <laughs> it pissed me off. I didn't go to any of the presentations because I would not I would not be able to control myself. But I saw I watched one on tape where the guy said, Well this is happening to golf courses all over the country. If I'd been there, I said, name me another nine hole name me another Pitai golf course with holes on the ocean that's been closed. Exactly. Stop lying to us. And it really pissed me off the other day. I went and walked the eighteen holes because the president of the club asked me to give him some thoughts. 
And for the first time, I see a sign pointing to the first T of Oak Marsh. And underneath it says in huge letters, a peat dye course. They had never done that before. They have never heralded Pete's involvement. And so yeah. they close nine cool Pete dying holes like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And six months later, they're heralding their, the other golf course. They suck. Oh, boy. They suck. <laughs> they suck. <laughs> and, you know, they let us play. And I go over there quite a lot if I do my four o'clock thing and go over there and play Oak Marsh which is a combination of what used to be the Oyster Bay Nine mm-hmm. and the Oak Marsh Nine. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's so... Cool it Well, it's it's Pete. Remember? It's uh, seven, 1970s Pete died before he got TPC. Pete. No, it, it was Pete before he moved dirt. Because yeah. back Low in... country. The, no, right. Back in that age, every description in a magazine called Pete the natural architect... Then when he started moving dirt, it was, oh, his courses are too contrived. But Uh what I always found interesting is the same exact holes were on the contrived courses as the natural courses. The same exact holes. The par threes are very similar. There's a couple fades. There's a couple draws. They're just wrapped with different features. It's really fascinating. You know, Pete used to give mcdonald and rainer the needle because uh you know you'd say hey i went to one of the and he says yeah which which of the 24 standard holes did that course get yeah but that, well, and then that's, that's what he did very yeah. much very much pete but you know um kind of unfortunately only a portion of one percent of people in the world recognize that you know they're they're too busy looking at the mounds or the railroad ties to look at what's real, the structure of the holes, which is really the most important thing. You know, they're always looking at the icing on the cake or the wrapping on the package. They're not looking at the really important structure. And to tell you the truth, today, I'd like to work my way into talking about structure of a golf hole, um, if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's do it now. Well, um, it's really funny, Derek. I was um, interviewing for a job in North Carolina, probably... Um, 20 years ago and um and 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 i got it and after i got it the general manager said to me um we would you like to know who else we were considering and i usually don't ask because seriously i am so insecure i'm afraid that if i ask who else was was in was trying to get the job, I would say, oh, fire me. You should hire that other guy. He's better than me. <laughs> it's really a sickness. And uh, one of the, and, and Bill, this guy at, at this club, he was he actually played at Michigan for a Bo Schembechler. Oh, cool. Had a pretty cool background. And he said, um, you know, one of the guys was Bob Cup, and he reached into his desk and he says, I, I want you to read Bob's uh, report to us. I thought it was pretty interesting. Oh, geez. Not only do you know who he's up against, now you've got to see his pitch. But it wasn't, it, it what the part that I read and reread, and I did not keep it. And I'm telling you, I'm going to call this club and ask them to send me a copy of the report because I bet they still have it in the files. He went on for about a page and a half where he compared a golf hole to the human body. 
And he said, you can't have a human body without a sound skeleton. And golf holes have to have sound skeletons. Mm-hmm. You know, the hole has to go correctly on the land. It has to turn correctly. It has to have the right angles and stuff like that. And if if your arm from the uh, elbow to your hand is straight, that's a pretty good skeleton. But if it bends 90 degrees somewhere, you got a problem. So the skeleton is really important. And this day and age of just latching on to the externals, oh, look at that blowout bunker. Oh, look at that laced edge bunker. Oh, that this is a so-and-so course. The, the bunker should have grass right down to the sand, or it shouldn't have that. Look, if one of those things is wrong, they can hire Gil Hans or Tom Doken in a half an hour. They'll make the bunkers correct. But if the course doesn't have the right structure, if the holes fight the topography, if, if there's not good variety in a, in a draw drive followed by a fade approach or vice versa, they can't fix that in 30 minutes. It takes months and months and months. And a lot of clubs will not make the commitment to, all right, we'll close for seven months. And a lot of clubs can't do it anyway. If there's real estate around them, you're stuck with those corridors. So Bob said the skeleton is really important. And I think I knew things like that, but I'd never so um, precisely put it down in words like Bob did. He was was an elegant guy and uh, just an incredibly intelligent intellectual guy and an artist as well. So it doesn't surprise me that he would be able to conceptualize it like that. So then he goes to the second step is the muscles and the tendons. And that's oh. how you that's how you, you orient your greens. Does a green point at the center of the fairway? Does it point at the left edge? Does it point at the right edge? Does it tell you to hit your drive down the left side to have an easier approach? Are there bunkers guiding the left side that you have to have to f- fool around? You know what I mean? Challenge one way or another to to be rewarded with an easier second shot. Really, really well. And again, I thought of a lot of those things, but like in two sentences, Bob coalesced it down to its most important points and clear points and points that were so clear that even somebody as daft as me could understand it after reading it once. And then he said, it's the skin and the skin is the turf and how nice the conditions of play are. And you know, when a lot of people go to a golf course, if it's lush green and it plays good, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's already a Mm 9. The design is like, sadly, secondary. When I I read all the magazine's criteria for rating a course, it it strikes me as incredible that the design-related criteria are less than half of the rating. It would seem to me, if you're saying this is a great course that there's no other linchpin that's as heavy as the design of the course, which always yeah. it always makes me wonder. I mean, just if you the took, old saying, beauty is skin deep, and it applies to golf courses, too. If you took Pebble Beach and moved it 50 miles inland, would we ever hear of it? I don't know. I, don't, I actually don't, don't know. See, Probably, I mean, would you? That's a good question. That would, that would, in, that would in imply that you, the architecture and the skeleton and the muscles were not as strong as they could be. No, well, or, or it implies that the setting is so overwhelming. And, and I think it's the latter. When I think of a great golf course, I really think of number two. In not mm-hmm. very impressive setting, 
but it's a very, very impressive golf course. Well, in many ways, it's it's the most impressive golf site. You know, the, you're right. The surroundings may not be impressive, but for, but for the elements that make golf as good as it can be and, and what it should be, it's almost unsurpassed. Yes, but see, I think it's hard for people who rate golf courses to not be immediately overblown by the course's history or its setting. And and I know Piner's number two has has um, has history, but it's not on the ocean. It's not on the mountains. It's not, it's not this. It's not that. And and it's 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 not the crown greens that make it great. It's that the flat parts of the greens are oriented towards different parts of the fairways. And if you want to have the best chance of staying on one of those greens, you read where do the flat parts of the greens face. And, you know, I've in all the articles I've read about number two, I've never heard anybody say that. Mm-hmm. All they're talking about is... Oh, you know, the sandy waste areas and, um, oh, there's love grass and, and the crown greens or Shinnecock. Oh, the Shinnecock. What a golf course. You know, the fescue is blowing in the breeze and it's so, well, the fescue blowing in the breeze is not what makes Shinnecock a spectacularly strategic golf course. What makes Shinnecock a spectacularly strategic golf course is the movement of the fairways. Even on a straight hole, the fairways sinew their way left and right around bunker groups. And that movement sets up on the same hole, a one drive zone that's a fade, one drive zone that's a draw, and one drive zone that's straight. It, it imparts incredible alternatives of play to the golf course and that is what makes Shinnecock great it's not the fact that fescue waves in the breeze if you mowed the fescue down the play characteristics of Shinnecock would be 99.9 percent the same and to me that's what makes uh, a good golf course versus a not so good golf course or a great golf course over just um, a good golf course I think yeah, I mo- hate to I hate to think this, but it's almost a case where the the more experienced or the more accomplished you are as as a player, the you're on, you're only those types of people are in a position to really judge the skeleton and this, the muscles and all the all the structure of a golf course that you're describing. I heard Jeff Ogilvie on um, Andy's Fried Egg podcast recently talk about Pinehurst Number Two, and he said. It is interesting that it's a golf course that the better, the more advanced player you are, the more difficult it is. It's for high handicappers; they can kind of put around, and they don't. They just don't notice all the intricacy and the, the these flat parts of the greens that are set right, up to certain right, angles that right. you describe. But good players know that, and it's really hard for them to to play the course the way it's designed to be played and score well. Oh yeah, see, I think the see right now in this age of power golf. And too many people are given into it. While they don't care about angles anymore, I find the greater number of alternatives you give them, the harder it is for them, because they're having trouble selecting among the alternatives. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I think that's a really, really an awesome thing. I think every raider, when he's going to a course, or she's going to a course the night before, they should spend an hour on Google Earth looking at the golf course. Um, from above, 
Yeah. Because that will open up angles to them that they never even see when they're playing the course. I, I usually find a lot of average people start to decipher the angles by mistake. Like, I'll, I'll play here at Oak Marsh, and I'll be standing on the tee, and there'll be a new person in the group who's a guest of mine or another person, and one of the guys will say, it's best if you hit the ball down the right-hand side of the fairway. And they're thinking there's bu- fairway bunkers on the left, so you hit it down the right. Well, the left is clearly where uh, the architect wanted you to go on that hole, if you look at it. And and so afterwards, I'll say to the person, I said, go on Google or sometime and look at the holes and think about where where everybody says you're supposed to hit the ball. And more often than not, it's the wrong spot. It, it doesn't open up the shot to the green or make the second shot uh, more manageable or make the second shot a shot that you can roll on to the green. When you say this is where you should be, you're thinking you just want to avoid the bunkers. Yes. But sometimes you want to be close to the bunkers. There's, there's this strategy thing. It kind of goes back to your expectations. If, if the, the guys you're playing with may not have a realistic expectation of getting the ball in the green with their second shot, so they just want to be safe. Whereas the advanced player, a guy who's, who wants to get his ball on the green with the second shot, will see that he's got to come in from the left side but, if he wants to yeah. have a bet, an easier or more direct shot. Lots of times these guys can't even reach the bunkers and they're still scared of them. There's yeah. plenty of room for them to hit to. I, I really think that... Um, design is dummied down and the average golfer dummied dummies down his possibilities on the course by saying well i can't do that a lot of these people i play with they can hit the ball within 15 yards of where they want to hit it they just don't hit it very far and if they tacked their way down a golf hole like this like they're sailing They'd score. They'd play much better. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they really. I wish the pros, when they say they want a lesson, would say, "I'm going to go out and give you a playing lesson first, and just see how how they feel on the course. What side of the tee do they set up? Where do they aim? That kind of stuff. I, I just know that they could take four or five strokes off their handicaps almost immediately. But they've dummied down their expectations. They say to themselves, "I'm not a very good golfer." So I just stand on the tee and try to hit it. I don't think of trying to hit it to a, a section of the fairway. Uh-huh. It's really, and, and you see the same thing on a lot of courses, a resort course or a, or a daily fee course. I, I try to remember what McKenzie said. He said the best golf holes are the holes you can play with a putter. All that means is there are alternate routes around the hazards. And a player like me can take the longer route where the better player cuts the corners and things like that and goes over the hazards where I kind of go to waypoint A, then uh, back to the right to waypoint C, and then into the green. And um, effectively, I'm hitting the same shot the pros are. It's just taking me two shots. They may they play the fifth hole at PGA West, which has got a, a draw drive with water on the left and then a fade second shot with water on the right. Mm-hmm. And so they're hitting their drive, and they're hitting a little bit of a draw, shortening the hole, and then they get over their second shot, and they're they're kind of aiming at the left front of the green, or maybe even five or six yards uh, to the to the le- to the left edge of the green, and they're hitting a fade, and it's right. taking the water out of play. It allows them to fail positively. 
I do the same thing. It just takes me two shots. I hit my five wood to the left of the pond, and then I then I accomplish their fade with my second shot when I go back to the right to go to the green. And I think sometimes if the average player knew how the accomplished player worked the ball to play a hole, they would say, hey, I can do the same thing. It'll just take me two shots. Yeah. And that, that goes back to your, your topic about whole sound hole structure. I mean, when you're saying that, I think of other uh, Pete Dye golf courses that have holes like that. And these are kind of the Pete Dye template holes, but no doubt. like 11 at Whistling Straits, that par five is very similar to 16 at, at uh, Kiowa at the Ocean Course. Yes. Yeah. I just, I just hope strongly that the age of power golf is, is not um, doing away with uh, the incredible emphasis Pete put on angles and working the ball one way and then working it another way. You know, I have people say, well, that's, that's really not part of the game anymore. And I, I think that's sad. Um, if that's not the case, you know, I first kind of caught on to Pete's templates back before I got married back in the late eighties, we used to shut the office down the first week in December and I had a little uh, unit on the 18th tee of the mountain course at La Quinta. And this is back when Landmark Land hadn't mm-hmm. been court-ordered out of existence. Right. yeah, yeah. And uh, Greg That's Lecce, when, uh, like, Lee and Brian were well, was, uh, working. Greg Lecce and uh, Lee Schmidt and Brian worked mm-hmm. for Landmark, and they used to set us up at all the courses that week. We would play nice. the La Quinta Mountain. We would play the La Quinta Citrus. We would play PGA West. We would go over and play the Dinosaur, not a Pete, but the Dinosaur course, the new Pete Dinosaur course. And after you played these courses, three or four of them in a row at dinner, it was impossible not to say to one another, hey, we played some of the same holes today. We played at the Citrus. And we would talk about it and we'd say, yeah, yeah, you know what it is? The... Uh, they're just wrapped in different features, but they're the exact same holes. And I have to tell you that one of the oddest things, one of the biggest influences on me changing or evolving or whatever, we were out there one year, and um, it was always the first week in December, so it was the week after the Skins game, and the Skins game had been played that year at PGA West. Right, I and remember I, that. I was in the lobby of the, of the La Quinta Hotel next to the fireplace, and in the wicker basket were programs from the skins game. And, uh, I, I, wow, a program. I said, I hope there's pictures of the golf course. And I opened it up and the centerfold of the program that year was an aerial photograph of PGA West. And I looked at it for about 30 seconds and I said, Oh God, it's all about angles. That's, that's what this design gig is. It's all about angles. Because I had played PGA West three or four times, and I'd photographed it one day, and without that perspective, and without really zeroing in on the golf course, I, I, I was ignorant, sadly to say, humiliatingly so, of how important angles were in Pete's designs. And it really dramatically changed a lot of my thoughts. But also what it did is it coalesced a lot of random thoughts that I had in my mind. 
that when you collected them together, it said, hey, dipstick, angles are important. <laughs> well, let me let me use that as, a, as an opportunity to, to get into something uh, similar to that, but slightly different. How is it possible in your mind, looking back, that you can be a practicing architect, you've been in the business for a while at that point, that... That was such a revelation to you, the concept of, of angles and, and the strategies that uh, underlie the, the use of angles. What was being, uh, what was being, what were you being exposed to or what was happening in golf course architecture as a field at that point where this was something that really only maybe P. Dye was doing at least effectively? Well, um, you know, um, Derek... It's just like any other business. There's Rembrandt, and there's people like that. I'm showing my artistic lack of knowledge. I can only name Rembrandt. Okay. But there are thousands of people who have been artists. But how many great artists have there been? Has it been 75% of the people who practice that craft? Who are great? Yes. Oh, no. I mean, it's like 5%, you know, whatever. Okay, okay. Well, I think the chances are the same that that percentage, and you almost said 1%, I think. I did. I I said 1%. Okay, we're going to go with 1%, just for the sake of argument. Okay. If 1% of the um, guys who paint were great, and there was one guy like Da Vinci who could paint and who could come up with uh, military equipment and engineering things hundreds of years before they actually happened. Maybe there's just 1% of industrial engineers and mechanical engineers or whatever you would call Da Vinci in that part of his life. It wasn't Mm -hmm. enough being a 1% artist too. Well, maybe Derek... There's a similarly limited percentage, he said haltingly, of really great building architects and really great landscape architects and really great golf course architects. And if you said to me, Brian, if you said to me, Brian, what would you do differently in your life? And I saw a lot of golf courses. My dad used to build golf courses. I worked for the USGA. All I did was visit golf courses in the summer at Lake City Community College. I would go around all the golf courses in the southeast where my students worked. I saw a lot of golf courses, but I, I guess it's twofold. I would, see, I would see as many golf courses as I could, and I would stop looking at the grass. The grass is so on Which is hard because that was your background. It's so unimportant, but that's what a lot of people look at. Like I, I read a review of the golf course and half of the review is how great the grass is. And the, and the other half is, wow, the, um, the love grass and the, and the old uh, railroad tie walls and that stuff is really cool. I I don't read very many um, golf course reviews that mention angles. So I think what happened is I would see that stuff. And it would go in my mind. And I, people tell me I shouldn't tell the, that story, but 
it was really that aerial photograph that coalesced those things in my mind. And like for the next week, I was always going, oh, yeah, that's that's like that whole so-and-so at that golf course that you like that much. And you 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 were not able to finitely say this is the reason I like it so much. But there was something about the movement of the hole that you really, really liked. But you just weren't sharp enough to say, oh, my God, look at the different angles that that movement allows. So I, I, I think that's, that's what it was. I, I, I think but you were not, you were not alone in that. I mean, you, oh, this no. was an industry wide thing. I, I guess the other side of this, this is, and I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying. I think it's really interesting and fascinating and self deprecating probably beyond what, what it really needs to be. Cause you're it's obviously what I a, do. a very I'm from New talented person. <laughs> right. Okay. But the other side of that is this concept, this acknowledgement uh, of strategy and angles and uh, the philosophy uh, underlying this style of design existed before. I mean, this was, it's been, it had been written about extensively in the 19 teens and 20s. It had been put in the ground at places. So what was happening, and I, this is a little bit rhetorical, but think about what was happening in the decades prior to you getting in the business where it had to take an aerial photograph of a Pete Dye course for these light bulbs to come on. They really hadn't been created. It was just the lights was turned off and you, they, people needed the lights switched back on. So I'm just saying, what, what does that say about the profession for that period of time that it could be a revelation to you? Well, Derek, I'm, I'm, I'm old. I'm 66. So I'm just going to be not old. Even That's though you're young. recording things, I'm going to be really, um, honest with you and lose some more friends. You'll gain friends, trust I, me. I think that um, the era of design from the 50s until Pete was proficiently practicing in the 70s and beyond was the era of golf course engineering. Yep. And also, I, I would add to that. Yeah, part of that is also it's the it's an era of agronomy. It, it's it's going back to these things that you've been saying. It's it's when there's there's such a scientific revolution happening starting around 1950 with irrigation and drainage and chemicals and tractors and machinery. It's really almost the age of the superintendent. You know the the um, the engineering thing. Uh, I I I um. I really think that that that's the thing, and um, and um, and get it done as efficiently and economically and quickly as you can, mm -hmm. and then then really it's Pete. There's no getting around it. Pete came in and more handcrafted his courses, and I just find it incredible. I have a friend here who took me out to play crooked stick a really early course in Pete's history. This is an insurance salesman. And he's thought so deeply about this stuff. And he's broken down a golf course into its components to such a degree that he's very confident in what he's doing. And I go to Crooked Stick. Some people say it's the second or third or fourth course that Pete did. And the angles are just spectacular. They're just incredible. It looks a little different than, than 
Pete's later work. You know, there were some bunkers that actually sat up in the air kind of in an, an interesting or some people might say odd fashion, but it was still the angles seven days a week. And look, sometimes I think we're not in the age of golf course engineering anymore. We're in the age of crunchy nut and granola. <laughs> if you get those bunkers looking wispy and you rip them instead of edging them perfectly, then it's a great golf course. I always have the same question. And look, I talk a better game than I do, probably. But I wonder, these beautiful pictures I see with the fescue blowing in the breeze and a blowout bunker, sometimes I get to play those, and I wonder where that structure and angles is. And so I, I think that there is movement in the correct direction, but I think we're also in an era where the incredibly spectacular inherent characteristics of the sites are 99% of what people are looking at when they play the golf course. And, and I wonder if those courses have the structure. I, I wonder, too, because there's two different things. One is the people that experience the golf courses. Are they noticing the structure? And then the other hand, is the, are they just overlooking it because they're distracted or they're not capable of seeing it? Or is it not there to begin with? Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, and I, I realize that I'm beating a dead horse here because when a good book on architecture comes out, it sells 5,000 copies. That says which, something to me. Which is not very much. No, no, no. That says something to me that there's potentially 5,000 people who get it. Well, I, I guess that's the positive spin. The negative spin is there's between 20 and 24 million people who play golf. <laughs> so it, it, it all comes back to those percentages. If, if uh, Da Vinci was one of the 5% and Rembrandt was one of the 5%, I don't even want to say the number of percent. If they were uh, that percent and Pete is that percent... That means that there's um, a, a lot of people, starting with the guy or gal who puts the course together and the guy and gal maintains the course and the guy or gal gives lessons at the course who, who, don't, who don't see it if it's there or didn't put it in there originally. So um, I, I think that era that I talked about as the one of engineering. I, I think it had some positives in the number of courses that were put together so people could play golf and take up the game. But I think many of the designs were uh, dummied down for a bunch of excuses that don't hold water. Um, we don't have that much money to build the course. Uh, this is a resort course or a daily fee course. Those people, you'll make it too hard. Well, the angles don't make it too hard. The angles afford a um, alternate route, or a, 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 as Howard Cosell would say, a veritable plethora of <laughs> of alternate routes. So there's always reasons that are given 
for not for not doing the best. But most yeah. of them don't hold water. And being in Florida and working at Lake City for three years um, really made me see these flat sites differently. You know, you go to a course, it's a flat site, and they say, well, that wasn't much. You know, there was no topography. What could the person do? Well, really, on a flat site, you should be able to do the most strategic golf course in the history of civilization. There are no mountains stopping you from putting a hole in a certain corridor. I mean, St. Andrews is not in mountains. No. And it's ridiculously strategic. So I think, uh, really, the the state in the Union that should have the greatest collection of golf courses is Florida. Because um, you could have done any any treatise on strategy you wanted on this flat site. There was nothing stopping you. And, um, you know, just because it's not up and down does doesn't no. mean... Lot- except for, except for uh, those... F- 20 houses over there and that street crossing and all the the drainage ponds. But yeah, if you could get a, if you could get like in the olden days, like in the, in the, you know, even in the post-war area, like down in South Florida, like West, West Palm beach, or, you know, those kind of rectangular properties with sand and and no features. I see exactly what you're saying. You know, they, they should, should have been the most strategic courses of all. So, you know, I, I think that this craft is like every other craft. There, there, there are, are people like Pete. There are people like McDonald and Rayner, who stood out. Um, from the crowd, and their courses remain interesting. Whether it's Pete's courses from the '60s or, uh, you know, the I like to call them a big three. You know, we had a big three in the '60s. In golf, but I think the big three of all time was <laughs> McDonald, Rayner, and Banks because right, yeah. I think they had such an unbelievable, or should have had, such an unbelievable um, influence uh, uh, on the craft. You know, they had the fairway movement. Uh, they, there's definite areas you want to come into a green from uh, on your shot, and then they had the quirky stuff that just adds to the aura. Um, of a golf course. You know, Pete used to do his peekaboo par four, uh, the fifth at Old Marsh or the um, 12th at PGA West, where if you went down one side of the fairway, or, or they, of course, they've bulldozed it out of existence. Like the old 12th at TPC, the 12th at Sawgrass. TPC you know, and they've yeah. put in this drivable par four that three guys a week try to drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, drive it. That's what Tom Doak said of Pete would have wanted that hole he'd have built it in the first time around you know and you know what and pete just in his his way he says you know what i call a drivable par four no (laughs) what pete a par three (laughs) no but it's just i i just i find those things wicked wicked sad but i also find it interesting to see how un-pete die like the replacement hole comes out. They got 17 others to look at there. And the new one comes, well, I I shouldn't even say that because those holes have been changed so much since the first time the big boys played it. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it, 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 our craft is, um, uh, just like, uh, any other, but you know, there's a really interesting thread that runs through this. 
McDonald didn't try to invent golf holes. He went across the pond and he surveyed golf holes and he sketched golf holes and he asked famous golfers and journalists of the time what were the holes they loved. And that's how he came up with the templates for the national. And then before Pete, Pete's book, Bury Me in a Pot Bunker, everybody was trying, who, gee, who influenced Pete? Who influenced Pete? And then in that thing, uh, he says he was extremely influenced by Rayner and McDonald. So maybe it was a little bit, just a little bit, like T.S. Eliot. He said that good writers borrow, great writers steal. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a completely original thought is given too much credence. I mean, seriously, are there more than a hundred original golf holes in the world? And the best ones after them are just adaptations of them? Yeah, it's likely. You know, it's so, um, for me, uh, seeing what architects who I admire did, but trying to see be beyond the the superficial, how does the grass look? Oh, look at that wild pot bunker. Well, the, the grass and the wild pot bunker may have given the whole a portion of its character, but what really gave that whole its character is a CB or Seth or Pete or whoever got the skeleton right. And you read this a lot. Oh, this course is pretty good. It's got, it's got wood walls like a Pete Dye course, or it's got so-and-so like a this course or a that course. And it's always the externals. Right. That it's the wrapping on the package and not what is inside the package. And, um, you know, just um, just putting in uh, uh, some of the externals like Pete did is not <laughs> is not enough to say, oh, well, this is as good as a Pete Dye golf course. <laughs> That's funny that in, you know, after Pete Dye gained notoriety and, or, and, and fame, really, that so many other architects in the in the late eighties and nineties, you know, would do railroad ties and pot bunkers, and just a clearly ripping off a style that that Pete had had developed, and we see a lot of it now in the two thousands as well. When uh, Bruce Hepner called it the bunker wars, like after Pacific Dunes opened and you know became a resort and everybody could go see it and experience it, like all these design firms who never would have designed blowout bunkers or chunk the edges or do kind of frilly bunkers started doing it all of a sudden, but it didn't, it didn't always have the strategic underpinnings behind it. No. And they, and they do them on completely wooded sites right? with right. heavy soils. But you know, that's always happens when, when someone is hot or, 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 or a course comes in that's hot, people, flock to the externals of that core. They flock to the muscles, tendons, and skin, and not the skeleton. And then, you know, people start doing railroad ties and strip bunkers like Pete. And when Pete was well, if you said to him, 
Pete, what do you think of railroad ties being your trademark? Well, let me tell you, you wanted to duck and get behind a piece of heavy earth movement equipment if you asked Pete that question. Because <laughs> it it was not the shining moment in his life to have people so zero in on such an external uh, factor in his courses and call that his trademark. That was... <laughs> It's like if you, you just didn't want walked to ask up that to question. speaking of artists, if like you went to Monet and said, you know, I you just love water lilies, don't you? Isn't that great? <laughs> Paint me some water lilies. Completely missing the point yes. that it wasn't about the subject; it was about the technique and the yes. light and everything. Yeah. Well, but you know, again, again, it's not it's not saying a bad thing, but most professions look. There are great, unbelievable doctors that. Someone with a serious condition should want to fly across the country to see. And then there's doctors at your local hospital that you probably wouldn't want to have consult. It's, it's just the way of the world. So, th so that it, it holds tr true that, um, that that whole, that that applies to a golf course design as well. Okay, let's grab a quick time out here, pause the conversation, catch our breath. If you haven't done so yet, please go to iTunes and search for Feed the Ball in the podcast section and leave a star rating, one through five. Hopefully five. Appreciate that. Let me know what you think about the show. Give me some feedback. Leave a quick comment. I really appreciate it. If nothing else, it lets me know you're out there, you're listening, and it's gratifying to me to see uh, that people are responding to the show. While you're there, click the subscribe button. You'll get uh, notified when new episodes drop. You can also do it, do it on your phone. Go to your podcast app, search for Feed the Ball. Just click the subscribe button. That's all there is to it. Thanks again for listening. Now, let's get back to Brian Silva. Can you tie together this awakening that you had when you saw the aerial of PGA West and, and you understood what, what Pete was doing? Can you tie that in to your kind of embrace of restoration and specifically McDonald and Rayner and, and where you took that knowledge and went from that point in your career? Well, Derek, there were, there were, there were a couple other things and, uh, that, I, that I have to tell you. Um, I used to do a GCSAA seminar, um, a two-day seminar on golf course design, restoration, reconstruction stuff. I did it with Bob Lohman out of Chicago for a while, and then uh, Jan Beljan. Uh, I, I was lucky to have Jan come on. Mm -hmm. And um, one day uh, during the seminar, somebody raised their hand and, and said, we're both up the front of the room, if you're doing a, a new course, um, how, how wide do you like to clear the corridors of trees? And, you know, I, I, I was always the kid jumping in the room trying to get my answer first. And I said, I like about 200 feet. And Jan just turned and looked at me. And, um, and, and then she said, well, we're more in the 300-foot width area. And, and so we just went on. And at lunch, she, just, she leaned over to me and said, Brian, how do you get everything you need? How do you get everything you want into a golf hole in only a 200-foot corridor? And bang! It was another moment. It was, oh, geez, these old courses I like that have all this fairway movement, the Shinnecock, they could never fit one of those golf holes on one of my corridors. Um, 
I got to widen out. And the next year, I, I did um, Cape Cod National and Waverly Oaks. And I'd have friends of mine come over who'd seen a lot of my stuff. And I remember we were walking down the first hole at uh, Cape Cod National, and the guy started laughing. And he says, what is this? And I I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you could fit three of your golf holes that you've been doing in this corridor. And I said, "Um, my corridors weren't wide enough. Not to get, anymore. <laughs> to get the movement. So um, I I think that really if if you said what were what were two significantly influential things, as odd as this sounds, and I should never admit this, I should say, well, Derek, it was years of reading the great <laughs> classic tomes on golf course design. For me, it was seeing the aerial photograph. Again, that tied together a lot of thoughts. I don't think I was completely, totally ignorant before I saw that, but I had not been bright enough to tie together different thoughts that were in different parts of my brain. That did it. But then it was a two, it was two things. And I never admit this. It was an article in Golf Course News, that trade magazine that d- didn't exist anymore, but it was pretty big in the eighties and nineties. There had been a rule passed on an island in Hawaii or a town in Hawaii. That that specifically said uh, corridors for golf holes couldn't be any wider than uh, 225 feet. And the guy who wrote the article had asked Nicholas what he thought of that. And Nicholas said, well, there won't be any more golf courses built in Hawaii. Something to that effect. And, of course, I said, oh, that what an inappropriately and incorrect thing to say. But that day when Jan said 300 feet, the immediate thought I had was, oh, that's why Shinnecock works. And oh, yeah, Jack said there won't be any more golf courses built because that's not a wide enough car to with. So it was really those things that made a big difference to me. And also, I was a little bit discontented with uh, my work. Um, I love the old courses, but I was not bringing that into my new work. Or I wasn't bringing it into old courses that hadn't been fortunate enough initially to be designed by Rayner or McDonald or, 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 or McKenzie or Donald Ross or, you know, so on and so on until you get to maybe 10 architects. And um, I just said, and it was a very off, unusual thing. I woke up one morning. I wish I knew what the date was. It was in January. We were just starting to clear the two courses I mentioned. And I said, um, I got to stop with bunker left, bunker right. I got to stop with uh, every single slice bunker at uh, 260 and every single hook bunker at 280. And I got to stop with a bunker left, a bunker rear, and a bunker right at the greens. And I didn't do that all the time. Sometimes I did a bunker left, a bunker right, and a mound to the rear, not a bunker. And I actually had a landscape architect point that out to me one time on the phone. He said, are you guys still doing the same stuff? I says, what do you mean by that? He says, well, you do a bunker left, a bunker right, and a bunker rear. And of course, I I took offense and said, no, it isn't. That isn't it. And I realized that was a lot of what I had seen from the age of golf course engineering. And so I was lucky enough to have um, a couple of clients who um, bought into something different and then 
And uh, instead of my fairway bunkers being parallel to the line of play, the way every fairway bunker was in the age of engineering, I started turning my bunkers uh, 90 degrees perpendicular to the shot or very sharply angled to the shot, the way that when you see an original Ross plan or other vintage guys, the vast majority of their bunkers on the plan are perpendicular or almost perpendicular to the shot. They they come right into the fairway and they cause just by the way they sit that fairway movement. You have no alternative but to move the fairways. But it also gives you a great landing area short of the bunker. You get a landing area short of the bunker, just as wide as the bunker itself. But also it gives you the chance to put a great landing area just as wide as the bunker itself past the bunker. And you get that movement in the fairway. So it was a lot of things. And and it it unquestionably, Derek, was working on some of these vintage golf courses that even someone as daft as myself, when you see these repeated themes over and over again, you say to yourself, huh, maybe that has something to do with the greatness of this golf course. Do you remember the first time i i'm interested in, in understanding like the origins of the what we call the current restoration movement i think that's a horrible name but i don't know what else to call it but the beginning of this period where for not just you but for a lot of people the the knowledge is is coming back into the light again about the golf courses that were being built in the 19 teens and 20s by those 10 or so architects that you mentioned and now clubs are becoming aware of this their history and the pedigree and and the lineage of their golf course and they're starting to become interested in repairing that as things had either aged out or been renovated through the decades. But do you remember, was there a specific project or a course you heard of somewhere that the kind of switched the whole movement on, kind of started to help redirect away from renovating, away from original architecture, and to restoring original architecture? I have one. And um, don't even... Let a smile form on the corners of your mouth when I tell you. Too late. <laughs> I think it was um, when Reese worked at the country club to get ready for the open. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard that before. I, 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 it was unbelievable. It was everywhere. That's all you heard of. And, and I, 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 I think I can say this. Perhaps it's interesting that a fellow who may not be wi widely heralded for his restoration projects, there was something about it being at the country club. And uh, what Reese had to say about the work and what their thoughts were and how they, they looked at old pictures of the first green and the fourth green and the 17th green, three greens that got rebuilt. And they also saw some little areas of little chocolate drops on the course. And they, um, and they, they, I never know how exactly I or other people make the greens exactly or the bunkers exactly like they were, but they took inspiration from that historical material. And, and, and that was something sort of new. I'm, I'm sure there were, places it was done before, but it was never publicized like it was at the country club. 
and 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 I think that really uh, started. Or again, it's so hard to say something started on this exact day. Yeah, but it it usually doesn't work that way. Yeah, but there sort is sort of, of con- like a, a public moment. It kind of confirmed it in public. Um, it was the first time you read extensively because you know when when a a, a course is being um, uh, prepared for the open, and it's one of the charter five members of the USGA original charter members, and a little something happened there in 1913 that was kind of important in the history of American golf. There was tremendous um, publicity associated with those changes. And, and I, again, I, I think it's interesting that it's um, not someone who's normally thought of for that, but he did it. And uh, if somebody said who started this, I would say, Reese, I get some interesting looks when I say that, but that's that's what it was. Well, I guess it's also interesting that he didn't really keep that that methodology <laughs> going forward. <laughs> well, you know, look, um, it it's a cyclical business. It's just like, see, that's what I think we don't realize sometimes is golf course design is like lots of businesses. In the 60s, it was twiggy and short skirts. And everyone's hemlines got shorter. Well, a lot of clubs in the 60s and 50s and 70s said when they wanted to renovate and my current thinking and my thinking for the past 30 years doesn't agree with that. We want something new. We, we don't want the same old tired thing. And there were mm-hmm. people then. And, um, you know, there's usually somebody in the lead car in this craft. And um, here, let me ask you, who, who would you say was in the lead golf course design car in the 60s it was undoubtedly rtj it was rtj and just like people started putting railroad ties and sometimes little pot bunkers and strip bunkers in their courses in the mid 70s and beyond because of pete people were inspired by mr jones's work that was the short skirt or the wide lapel of the day, if you know what I mean, Derek. Mm-hmm. I do. It's a, it, it, is a, it is a fashionable business. And like, oh, God, who did you – you just mentioned somebody who's an awesome architect and he did piping rock. The Oh, oh Bruce. Bruce, Bruce a wicked, talented guy. You know, he's, he's pointing out, hey, hey, enough already with our wide lapel equivalent today. Those wide lapels don't belong everywhere. Taste change. You know, That's right. right. Yeah, you know, taste change. So I think there's always uh, a guy or a few guys who are um, who are leading the pack in all professions, but certainly in design. And then it breaks out kind of interestingly. 
there are some people who are following that one, who knows how, what number it is, pretty closely and, and look at the work of those leaders in a discerning way and really see what it is beyond the externals and are, and are doing some good stuff. And then there are others who are just seeing the externals. And then there's quite a few more that are just doing what they've done and feel that what they do is the correct way to do things and that they shouldn't be influenced by the leader of the pack. I think for the last 20 years, we've been in this kind of a steady state. There's a lot of great things that has happened in architecture in the last two decades. It's, I think it's in a pretty healthy place, you know, since since the the a number of golf courses that are being constructed has gone so far down, typically the ones that are built are of really high quality, and yet we've been here for about 20 years, and since tastes do change, I can't help but think there's going to be another shift in taste coming up at some point. When you look on the horizon, and, you, and you'll be a part of that as well over the next you know period of time... What do you see coming? I mean, do you see <laughs> Derek, a, is golf at a crossroads or does it need to to kind of get out of this? I, I've been calling it the current period, especially with new courses, but it applies to restorations to a period of neoclassical naturalism, taking the golden age principles, remembering them, restoring them. And then kind of there's this sheer naturalism uh, skin over the top if it's not a coastal dunesy site where it's really authentic. But you know, can we stay it? Have we gotten to this point where this is good enough and where architecture can just stay in this nice, happy place or does it need to evolve into something else? Well, in all honesty, uh, and I'll give you an answer. I'm the last person to ask that because I always feel like I'm five years behind the, the curve. And, and I'm always, I'm always picking up on what's going on five years late. And I throw Don't you think you were ahead of the curve with restoration? Um, I know you're a modest guy, but I, I just, it's, it's, I'm not, uh, I, maybe, maybe I, I, it's just not, I'm so, um, repulsed by, um, architects who are, who are their own public relations firm and every word that comes out of their mouth is public relations. I'm good. And you're not, I just not, I'm not good at, at talk. I'm not good at answering that stuff. I, I don't know. Um, here's what I think. I'm, I'm really hopeful that the craft does not turn it back. It's back on the incredible sound principles that were employed by great vintage architects. And I hope at the very least they will continue or, or, the, or, or a certain percentage of people, not everybody is inspired by that. Some people find it hokey. A uh, writer whose opinion I uh, uh, think highly of, uh, you know, wrote a little piece on Raymond McDonald, real, you know, uh, recently and said, I'm really hoping to see a renovation soon that isn't inspired by Rainer and McDonald. It will be a different thing. Um, but I, I hope that the craft will be inspired by the sound principles of strategy and angles that the vintage architects employed. The skin may change, Derek. 
that we may get to a point where not every single new bunker in the world is ripped. The edges right. are ripped. But again, that's just the skin in the Bob Cup approach. And the skin can be changed very easily. If, if uh, you don't rip a bunker and, and it, somehow it's decided the rip bunker will give the project more panache, you can go in and rip it. But if you have ignored the sound skeletons and the principles of sound skeletons that the vintage architects employed and that Mother Nature employed, uh, no degree of contemporary skin coating will make up for that. You just said you were the wrong person to ask that. I don't think I've heard it said any better. I mean, I think that's such well, a, no, a uh, really the, the, yeah, uh, succinct. I, 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 but I, but I do get uh, a great uh, smiles out of. It seems like I'm always exactly five years behind, behind the curve. <laughs> but uh, again, um, I, I, I always come back to the fundamental, whether it's right or wrong. I've had. Um, Staff architects for very, a very famous architect say to me, he said, Brian, you're going down the ro- wrong road with the strategy thing. It's, it's all about the look. Hmm. And, and look. How long ago that was that? Like oh, 25 three, years oh, ago? No, three or four years ago. Oh, crazy. <laughs> and look, maybe, and, and he, look, I'm just a little fish. I'm not a fish. I'm a little minnow in a great big pond. And I, I'm really happy, uh, largely, with how things have gone for me. My dad used to build golf courses. When I realized I wasn't going to play in the National Hockey League, I wanted to be a golf course architect. It's all I ever wanted. Uh, during the boom, Mr. Cornish and I would probably get 150 resumes a year from kids in college, 50-year-old guys who wanted to change craft. And some of those would have grading plans in them, full sketch plans. This is what the whole will look like from the T, sketched out in pencil, just beautiful things. And here I am. I couldn't sketch if my life depended on it. Uh, if you see my grading plans for an 18-hole course, I defy the laws of nature at least 40 or 50 times until one of my drafting guys cleans it up for me. <laughs> by by connecting the 726 contour with the 524 contour, but for, mm-hmm. somehow they can get the idea of, of what I want. But it still comes down to, I think courses are more than just the look and the skin. I think there's something that happened before that that's really, really important. And I would hope that the craft would... Um, come to a greater appreciation of that. Because right now, if you said, Brian, what co- what projects do you like the best? Or what projects have you liked the most after the fif- past 15 or 20 years? I re- uh, Greenville Country Club, their Riverside course. They called me up and I don't really like mentioning specific projects, but... Is this Greenville, South Carolina? Yeah. And... Uh, the fellow on the phone went on to become a good friend of mine, said, uh, we want to renovate our golf course, and um, we've been told you might be able to uh, put some Seth Rayner characteristics into our golf course. Um, do you think that you could do that? 
And I said, well, uh, I'd like to come down and talk to you and we'll take a look at it. I think those are the projects that I really enjoy the most. Um, I believe the bunker placements are similar to Rainer. They've got a punch bowl green. They've got a folded green. They've got a double plateau. They've got a Beeritz. But the bunkering is not Rainer's style. It's, it's, oh boy, <laughs> it's bunkering inspired by the ripped bunkers that I see. It's a, a little bit more artistic style. And I don't mean to speak for them. They love it. And it was really fun. And I've done some new courses where you can obviously see uh, every fairway bunker is perpendicular to the shot. It sticks out into the fairway. But there's 40 yards of fairway if it's a hook bunker to the right of it. And that imparts really a pleasant uh, movement. And you'll see some redans and stuff like that on it. So you'll, you will see that um, it's been significantly inspired. But I really have fun on the projects where, and don't get me wrong, I have fun on the, hey, let's restore this place. But I, I think I have um, just a tiny bit more fun when um, they say, Let's make a, uh, a a more modern course, but with some of that. They don't say this. It's what my brain hears. Some of the skeleton in it. Mm-hmm. I think that's those are really fun. But you know, any time you have a chance to practice this craft, in you know it, it's fun. It's I'm still amazed again when I saw these resumes and. 50-page plan packages from people who wanted to come in the office and run the blueprint machine. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still um, in, a, in a position where I find it amazing that out of, out of all those people, I, I got a chance to start. It's really in, incredible because it's, it's still largely an apprentice-like business. You know, Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer can just put out a shingle tomorrow morning at nine o'clock that says they're a golf course architect. And because of their visibility, that works. I'm pretty sure I couldn't have put out a shingle in February of 1983 and said, Brian Silva architect. I think that just would have led to a recurring spot on the comedy channel. It's interesting. That's what Pete Dye did. Like you said earlier, he was in in insurance and got into golf design. I know it was a different era, but I think that, don't you think that enabled him to do the things that he did? If he would have been an apprentice and come up working for somebody else, who knows what kind of ideas on golf course design he would have had. I don't know if Pete could have done that. Probably not. You know what I mean? But but look, this is why in so many different facets, you're talking about one of the greats of all time. He was a good amateur golfer. His wife is a good amateur golfer. When they played golf courses, they did more than play the golf course and say the grass was nice. They obviously studied them intently. And for all intents and purposes, he was able to put out a shingle. That's freaking amazing. Yeah. That's, but again, that just goes along with everything of Pete. In the late 60s, when it was unquestionably, probably almost like it's never been in history, domination by one architect, Mr. Jones. 
Now, that doesn't mean Mr. Jones was doing all the work, but lots of courses had tees that were 100 yards long. You know what I mean? He, he influenced people dramatically. And, and, and I believe very much that every geographic region in the United States had a cut rate Robert Trent Jones working in it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, everybody who's listening to this right now, go think about a golf course that you played where you live that was built in the 60s or 70s. Sometime, and they probably have runway tees. Sometime we're going to get together and have a sandwich and we're going to laugh and I'm going to say, okay, start naming the guys in each geographic because yeah. you can name them and I would never uh, <laughs> in this circumstance. But that's, that's what's even <laughs> more about Pete. And, and like I had students that work for Pete at um, Long Cove which he went to after the Players Club. I, I, was at the, I was at Lake City Community College, and I'd go and see them, and they would work like animals six days a week, and then Pete and Alice would have them over to the condominium on Sunday for stakes, and then he'd take them to play Harbor Town. Would you count the architects on one finger who would do that? Yeah, I mean, it's, you don't... I don't know. You do. I think you do hear hear things maybe a little bit like that now, but, and maybe from guys who who work for Pete. No, right, right. That's right. I don't think RTJ or no. Um, but but people see that's a, that's another thing that I would hope that um, golf course design would continue a little bit of the thing now, where design is a little bit more of a community effort. Back in the good old days, guys used to say to another guy, "Hey, come over and see my course." I want to know what you think of it. And I think we're getting a little bit more of that today. And certainly some of the staffs that um, some of the guys have uh, translates into that, where there's more than one set of eyes um, on a project. I, I think that's a really, really valuable thing. I know I used to like to have, uh, when new courses were still being built, I'd have my guys and from the office come out, and we'd walk the 18, and they, they always would have two or three very, very interesting suggestions. And one of my favorites was we, we did a course, and um, the, we finally got the permits, and I gave three of the guys the route plan, and I say, you have to respect these corridors, and you have to respect the wetlands. I want you to do a strategy plan using these corridors. And it was dramatically educational, yeah. R really fast. I had one guy who threw himself into it. And uh, it, when I'm at that course, I, they say, hey, we like, you know, this is okay. This, 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 doesn't, it, this isn't completely crappy. Uh, and I say, well, six of these holes are Brian Johnson's holes. And they say, well, what are you talking about? What's a Brian Johnson? And I said, well, I... I um, I gave the guys a route plan and told them to make a strategy plan. And I like Brian's strategy plan within my card as on six holes better than I like mine. So I used his. So I think that collaborative thing is, um, is really, really important. Yeah, we're definitely into that phase. Now, so many of the younger guys who do shaping for, for, you know, the, the, the guys we know, Doak and yes. Hans and, and Corn Crenshaw are younger. And I think it's sort of this millennial generation that it really feeds off collaboration and community and trading of ideas. There's a little bit less ego. I don't know if that's the right word or ownership or desire to have ownership or, or authoritarian ownership of, of their design, but they really bounce and play off each other. And of course their bosses give them a lot of freedom 
to collaborate and come up with ideas too. So that is definitely coming back. If it's, if it ever, you know, I don't know when it started coming back, but it's been back. And I think, you know, that's an interesting thing to think about how, when these guys sort of take over the industry, you know, at some point, you know, there's, there's turnover, people retire. Although golf course architects don't really retire, it seems like, but eventually these guys will be, um, the the main players and it'll be interesting to see if they still continue to collaborate with each other if there are different partnerships that form and and then dissolve and they get together with other guys and then what kind of young talent they bring up you know there's a lot of interesting things going on derek i really think they're already leading the parade i i um i i um culturally they might be yeah i think they're leading the parade and i think i think they've influenced the skin uh, dramatically of of uh, contemporary golf courses and um I, I i definitely and i i i don't see them changing the way they work i think they um i think they think it's uh, valuable and i think it's fun to go out and i know i know some people have trouble with it when i had a bunch of people in the firm one day one of the younger guys said, hey, come on out and see my course. And he said, I want you to tell me what you're thinking. By the time we got to the first green, he he was so affected by my comments that that it was turned into a negative thing. Some people um, are more uh, able to have that back and forth. And, and for some folks, it's hard. But I I think it's um, I think it's a valuable it, it, it has the potential to be a very valuable thing uh, just to get other people's thoughts on things. And and um, I suspect that I don't suspect there have been times when someone has suggested something to me and I haven't thought it was a good idea. And there are times when somebody suggested to me I've run right over to the bulldozer operator and told him to stop what he's doing. Here's what we want you to do. So and I if I had it to do over again. See, this is what really stinks. There can be no question that I'm closer to the end of my career than the beginning of my career. <laughs> and how could... <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I don't need to prove I'm near the end. Um, <laughs> don't, let, let's not have it be the end right now. Yeah, that, that would be, that would be um, <laughs> uh, inconvenient, wouldn't it? Um, but uh, you, you, you realize you learn and you learn and you learn and you're, you're sitting waiting for a project that you can uh, transfer those thoughts to. But if I had it to do over again, I would try to be a more collaborative uh, business uh, than we were. We were just so busy uh, that we were all going in our separate directions. And I think a little more collaboration uh, would have been valuable. And we hired this young kid out of Wisconsin named Brian Johnson, who who I feel if he got a chance would be as famous as any architect alive today. His thoughts on strategy and multiple routes are really endless. But uh, unfortunately, the contraction in the business um, he had. He went to work for Peter Jacobson and Jim Hardy from us, and and they didn't have enough work. And now he's doing a cool thing. He has a course management company, and he he does a course that he worked on with Jacobson and Hardy. But 
uh, one thing that I think is unfortunate today is just um, the contraction in business and how that has uh, hurt young guys like Brian from getting in and staying in the business. Yeah, that is that is true. Because this, is is, this kid is so unbelievably talented, just incredible. Well, that's almost kind of like what, what Bill Corr had to do. You know, he, he was in construction, and then he kind of he had to spend some time as a superintendent just kind of working operations yep. until he was able to, the, and the economy was right, and everything was allowed him to get into the design thing again. Yes, yeah. So it's, um, you know, I'm... Uh, I, I realized that I, partly it, it was just I was lucky to be born in 1953 because I I lived through a, a period from the low 80s uh, to uh, about 2010 that I don't know if there was another period in history where there was as much golf course activity as there was then. And yeah. and then I look at a kid like Brian, strictly because he was born in a different time, um, his opportunities have been dramatically limited. So it's just, a, it's just, a, I know we all think that we all do this and we work hard at it and we're away from home and we've really applied ourselves and, and that's all well and good. But Part of this is, how do you say it, other than luck? Yeah, I don't, yeah luck. I don't, you know, my wife says, well, honey, you work hard. I said, how many times have I come home after a week and said I need the hand brush to get the dirt out of the, my fingernails? I never do. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm on planes a lot, and I'm away from home a lot. I guess that is an example of working hard, but... Boy, if you can't do this in this craft, what craft are you going to do it in? Yeah, but you, know you don't I mean? have to apologize for it, Brian. You know, you, know? you do. At, at some point, you know, your work speaks for itself. People recognize your talent, and that's why you get jobs. I, it's it's a great thing, you know. That um, I'd known Mr. Cornish, who helped me get started since I was about twelve years old. See, my dad used to do shaping. They never called it shaping back then. They just said bulldozer work. Dad would be on jobs that. Jeff was on, and he would uh, do the uh, greens and tees and bunker shaping. And uh, so I knew Jeff um, since I was a kid. And I used to, when I was in college at UMass, uh, Stockbridge, four-year in graduate school, I'd stop over and see Jeff. He lived about two miles from UMass, and we'd talk about design for four or five hours. And then, uh, and um, I never knew this until after the fact. I went over to see Jeff. Uh, in the summer of uh, 1977, to tell him I had um, I had called him up and said, Jeff, can I come over? And he says, yeah, I'll be home next Thursday. Why don't you come over around 2 o'clock? And I went over to tell him I'd gotten a job teaching at Lake City Community College. Well, between me calling him and asking him if I could come over, he and Bill Robinson, who was his partner at the time, said, well, when Brian comes over, we're going to offer him a job. There was a boom out in Western Canada, and they just needed more help. And, of course, the type of guy Jeff is, when I said I was going to Lake City, he wouldn't offer me a job because he felt I had committed myself um, to another job. And so four years later, I came back to work for the USGA, and, 
And I always tell people, Jeff and I just happened to be visiting a golf course the same day. It wasn't by chance. I'd heard he was going to be visiting the course, and I just showed up. And he was walking, as he always did. He just never rode in a cart. And as we were walking off the ninth tee and everybody else took the carts, he just turned to me out of the middle of nowhere, and he said, you know, I think it's time you got involved in golf course design. Uh, what would you say to come into work for me? And, and we'll work together for a while, and then I'll retire. And like any young wet behind the ears punk, <laughs> I said, well, Jeff, I'll think about it. And, you know, at that moment, I knew that that I would say yes. So when I said yes, this is kind of gentleman Jeff was. He said, well, you've only been working for the USGA for a year and a half. I want you to work for them for three more years, and then we'll go to work together. And I said, Jeff, I, I would not be able to do that. I this is what I've wanted to do for as long as I've had something I've wanted to do in my mind. I said, let me finish out this year and, and we'll make the switch in the winter. And he said, yes. Yeah. So I just, you know, uh, I look at it as uh, uh, just an incredible opportunity uh, that I was given. And again, we used to hear from kids who were tremendously artistically talented people. So... I um, I have a lot of good fortune in my last, well, I've had a lot of good fortune in my last 66 years, Derek. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've done a lot of great work, too, so let's not, let's not overlook it. You've taken advantage of the opportunities you've had. Well, you know, you, you, you always look back, and I'm uh, uh, pretty critical of my own stuff, and you always look back and and think, I, I wish I'd done this a little different. I wish I'd done that a little different. You know, your, your thoughts change. If you're a writer, your thoughts change. You know, you look at something you wrote 15 years ago and said, oh, my God, did I write that? And so it's, it's, it's just an interesting evolutionary uh, circumstance, the craft. Um, yeah. I know people might say, well, no, I knew what I wanted my courses to look like from day one. But I think... Um, a couple beers in them would get them to say, well, I've really evolved and fine-tuned my thoughts. On that topic, I think I know the answer to this, and we're touching around it, but I, I recently, knowing I was going to talk to you, uh, brushed off my old pictures of Black Creek that uh, are, I mean, first of all, it's a wonderful course to photograph. It must have been even even better before all the houses went up, but it's such an interesting golf course. I was going to ask you, though, about that. You know, if you could if you could rebuild that course or another new course today, like have has your thinking on what you would do changed at all in the in the time period since then? Have you gained more knowledge or or did you discover, like you said before, keeping the classic strategic principles, the skeleton and doing a kind of a modern skin on on top of that is what is what really appeals to you. So where how has your thinking changed maybe since Black Creek or if you just want to talk about Black Creek. Well, Black Creek was really unusual, Derek, because uh, everyone involved with Black Creek had the same exact goal, and that was to be inspired by Rayner's work. Yeah. And um, another thing was, it was a wicked site. There were some areas where there was some natural erosion in the landscape. And that natural erosion was the perfect inspiration for the way the greens pointed down the fairways on a couple of holes. It was uncanny, uncanny. It just, 
I, sh I have to get up and walk around when I start talking about it. I'm just shaking my head. The fourth green was up on a, benched up on a hill, and there was some erosion that perfectly defined what the angle of the green should be to work with the strategy on the golf hole. There were two or three holes like that. The tenth hole is kind of a mildly dramatic green setting. It falls mm -hmm. down into a front bunker that's probably... 25 or 30 feet below the level of the green. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. That was there. <laughs> now, I will tell you that the 10th fairway is probably one of the favorite fairways I've ever done in my life because it really has the great sinews. Mm -hmm. tr tr tremendous, tremendous sinews. I, uh, in, an, in a very non-New England way, I will take credit for that. I didn't say before I started that, I want to have a green that sits up in the air about 25 feet higher than a bunker, sort of like the left-hand side of the second green at Yale. I never said that, but that thing was there. If, if, if somebody said, you can go back to Black Creek and do whatever you want, I might move around some of the fairway bunkering, but that's it. In what way would you, would you alter oh, that? I think it, I think... I think some of the fairway bunkering could be a little more strategic uh -huh. than it is. Now, is that something that, that you just, you've come to learn that because of other maybe Rainer courses that you've seen since then, or what I think motivates just, that thought? I, I would say it's, it's, a, it's not specifically related to, to Rainer. I just think that some of the fairway bunkering could be a, a little bit more strategically placed okay. than it is. I look, we're not supposed to talk that we like this course more than that course. I Why got not? into unbelievable trouble once comparing two of my courses on the Boston Sunday Globe. And I got a call from the owner of the one that didn't compare well Monday morning. And then I got <laughs> well. a letter from him and I needed asbestos gloves to pick up the phone and pick up the envelope of the letter. But Black Creek is a very uh, special uh, uh, design uh, to me. And I have to right. say, I go back now and they've planted trees around the houses. And I'm not a fan of the front nine housing either, but it, it's less offensive to me than it was 20 plus years ago. And, right. you okay. know, you see, I, I, one thing that I think is uh, really kind of cool about Rainer McDonald, they did these things that we find odd today, like punch bowl greens and beeritzes and things like that. And I don't think they thought they were odd. They just thought they were part of building a golf course. And I will never forget on the sixth hole when we, we started talking about what was the sixth green going to look like. And the problem with the sixth hole is we wanted it to be par five length. And the last 75 or 80 yards of the land were completely against putting a green at the end of that 75-yard length because it was dramatically downhill. And we would have had to do what we always do, made a 25-foot cut in the ridge that was um, 80 yards short of the green and push that stuff towards the green and then attempt to naturalize it. And with the Rainer excuse in our hands, I remember going out with the bulldozer operator saying, I said, you see where this knob is? We're going to make it much sharper on the um, T side and then we're going to bench some bunkers in there. We said, what are you going to do about the green? And I said, well, it's just going to be a big punch ball green. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you won't see it, and you'll just hit blind over the hill. But you'll be if you hit it with some mustard, 
and get it over the brow of the hill, it'll roll onto the green. And and that was really foreign to him, as it would be foreign to 99% of the guys who shaped contemporary golf courses. Yeah. But Black Creek, everybody was just in the same boat, and um, it was a really nice... The site had some very, very interesting uh, characteristics to it. And that doesn't mean that we didn't have discussions where one guy thought one thing and one guy thought the other thing and one guy thought uh, still another thing. I, I remember the 14th green. That's a short par five with a kind of interesting green location right on an existing roll and a fairway that goes way out to the right. Everybody mm-hmm. wanted to take that hole further up the hill. And I said, no, the the, the green is is right there. So it, it it was a cool thing. I I really wouldn't see myself going back and touching the greens. That, that doesn't mean they're great, but I I think that's something that you that is hard for someone in this craft. They do a course 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and th- thankfully it's a circumstance where the client brings you back and doesn't hire the new flavor of the week. And 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 you have to say to yourself, well, what do I do? Do I do the 2019 Brian Silva here? Or do I say that this course has a character that's worth uh, saving? And I just think because um, Black Creek was a departure, really, in that time in the history of design. Yes. And that I just, if someone wanted, if they wanted to contemporize the course, I would just say, I would shake each of their hands and say, fellas, this has been one of the greatest experiences of my life, but I'm not going to be able to help you do that. And and I appreciate what you did for me here. Oh, God, the, the seventh hole of the Redan, that green was there. It's unbelievable yeah. mm-hmm. how, how much that was there. Incredible. So well, that was always Rainer's great talent that gets overlooked is 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 not just that he had these concepts and they built these these cool holes. It's finding them on the property, knowing when when to build a green or where to place a bunker because of the topography. The 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 seventh green was there. It was ridiculously serendipitous. It was uh, in, in just incredible. The high left side was there. It went away from the shot. It was, uh, so much. That was so much fun. Um, Well, I'd like to hear you say that about if you had an opportunity or if they asked you to come back and do something to the course, kind of leaving it alone. I mean, if if we've learned anything in the last 30 years of restoration and rediscovering classic architecture, it's it's that things should have been left alone where they they could have been. You know, there are moments in time there. They become historical pieces after they exist. And, you um, know, this is a piece of you that deserves to live on untouched. I think it's just so hard to not push your current thoughts on it. Like if someone went to a course I've done in the past 10 years or 15 years and then went to Black Creek, they would say, where the hell are the close cut chipping areas around the greens? There are no close cut areas. They're all rough. You love Mm -hmm. these close cut areas. And, I always had a little trouble figuring out how to put them on rain or courses because their greens are usually fairly hard-edged, if you know what I mean. Yeah. They don't roll over at the edge like Pinehurst number two that lends them into going in. Do, do you know what I mean, Derek? It, yeah, absolutely. It, it kind of lends They're them into it. They're popped up and, yeah. You know, and I've had people at Black Creek say, well, I wish we had more chipping areas. 
And and I just say, well, you understand that it 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 doesn't work great with your style of um, of greens. I would I would say that um, if I could take the inspiration of the tenth fairway and the movement on that fairway, and get that degree of movement on a, a on on a little bit more of the holes at Black Creek, oh boy, I'd be happy. That's an awesome hole. <laughs> I I uh, you know, and there are holes that have good movement. I and I you th- stand there because because you want to. I mean, there's so much fairway out to the left of that fairway bunker. It, it, it's begging you to to hit it there, and but you almost you need to either get on online with that bunker or try to hit it. I don't know if you, some people can hit it over that bunker. I'm oh, sure. Oh yeah, and then people just, can hit it over. But see, um, that's why um, I, I'm not um, concerned about the playability of that hole for the average person. They can get the great angle by hitting short of those bunkers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because the, the 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 angle of that green, you have to come in from the right you side. Got it. Whether so it's it, it it's not just oh well, what good is this for me and ninety nine percent of the other players? I can't wail a draw over those bunkers. Oh no, you can hit your drive. You won't even reach those. Just put the your drive as close to those bunkers and you as you can, and you're in a good spot. Yeah. I, that's I I think that's a good example of a hole that can be played with a putter. A hole where angles. I, I think it's good. It's good that we came to that one. It looks severe. You look at that front bunker and you say, "Well, how the hell is the how the hell is Aunt Gertie going to play that thing? She can't <laughs> even walk down in it." And I would say, "Well, this is how Aunt Gertie's going to play it. She's going to hit her putter as hard as she possibly can down the left hand side. Then she's going to hit it again. And when she gets pin hider, so to speak, with the 10 yards off the green, perfectly angled with the green, and she can go to town. Yeah. This, having these alternate routes, I, I really think you can come as close in these sinewy fairways that the average person will tack the, their way down like sailing, but the good player will try to overpower them. We'll see. But I, I think the 10th hole is just a good example of how you can put uh, some character, some play character in a hole for the people who are trying to overpower the hole, but still leave those waypoints for the average player to sail to, to uh, manage the golf hole. You know, my only hope is that they will actually see there's a way they can manage the golf hole. And, and I'm not convinced that's going to happen because they probably haven't played a lot of holes in their life where they could figure out how to manage it. There was just one way to play it. Mm-hmm. So that, that I think that's a that's a, a good um, example. And I can't leave Black Creek without saying this. I've shot 174 in my life on a course that wasn't a putt-putt golf course, and it was Black Creek. And it was from 6,700 yards, and that's not my game. Mm-hmm. And um, I, bird, I started out by birdieing 10, and, and I thought, oh, maybe this could be okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it goes, it's the knowledge too. Like you just said, you know, people may not know how to play it because they, they're not programmed or they have, don't have experience having to, to see a, a golf hole and understand how to tack their way around it. Cause they're not asked to do that before, but as a designer, you knew exactly where, what points to play to and what your capabilities were and how to 
come to attack that golf course. You know, sometimes the it's a little too bad in the game. You know, there are people who love, love, love the game, who get to a course on Saturday morning and put their ball in a rack and wait for three hours to tee off. I don't know that I would do that. But the fact that most of Rayner and McDonald's golf courses are at fairly exclusive facilities, I feel bad because they miss the chance to see the real thing. I feel bad too as as a non-member of any of their clubs. <laughs> yeah. I feel yep. I feel like I'm being left out. No, 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 but it's just that's one of the the greatest benefits of my job is whether it's Seminole or St. Louis Country Club or Interlaken or places like that. I I never would have gotten on them in any other way and um to to get to them and be there for, you know, 40 times, 50 times, 60 times, the things that you don't see right away, even if you're trying to see them, it's really been great. It, it It's so um, educational. You know, every day you're on a course, you, you see things that um, you think might inspire you, but then you see other things and you say, no, I'm just not interested in doing that. It's both sides of the equation. Mm. But you to to... To get to learn those things. Wow. Hey, I, I, I appreciate your mention of Black Creek. That was a really nice walk down memory lane for me. I remember back when I used to have 35 millimeter slides. I used to have shoe boxes full of slides. I used to take pictures every time I visited. Mm-hmm. And one time there was a shoe box that just had 15 or 20 slides in it. And I couldn't figure out what golf course it was. It was just in dirt. And I'm going... Oh, somebody must have sent me this slide. I have never had a sight this beautiful. And then I looked at it a couple more seconds and I said, you dip. Yeah. That's nine at Black Creek. Right. And it, it, it brought back to me what a, what a very, very cool sight it was. I have that problem really. with when I look at my old photographs, but... It's because I lived in Florida for three years and took film photographs and all the golf courses look the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was just, um, it was so uh, an interesting experience. Well, let's let's finish up with this one. Going back and kind of bringing this, this concept of, of you being on the job back to full circle. The job in North Carolina where you got access to Bob Cup's proposal, his elegant thing that really inspired you the way he described his process and his thinking. Uh, how did you get that job? If if his proposal was so wonderful and, and they kept it and wanted to show it to you, what would? How did you get that job? Well, you know, I, you know, Derek, I, I really don't know. I never ask people afterwards. Um, why did you hire me, or what was it? Because I feel it will expose my insecurities to them, and and I don't want to do that. I, I would just say to you, um, I think I have an enthusiasm for my work. And um, I think that enthusiasm appeals to some people. Well, it, it's definitely is an appealing quality that you have. I can testify to that. <laughs> uh, now, now, look, some people uh, uh, find it too much when we're out on the course and I'm grabbing one of them by the sleeve and I say, come over and look from here. And this is what you have to this is what we need to do. This is what, you know, that, 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 that they're a little concerned that 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 I will be wholly unbearable during the job. But I think um, I've been really, really lucky 
the vast majority of clients that I've worked with have um, taken me as I am and um, and been really, really supportive of my work. And that's really, really important, you know, because it, it comes down to this. If um, if you're working at a club and they kind of say, yeah, we want to go along with your theme for the golf course. And they may have suggested a theme to me like uh, Greenville Country Club on the Riverside course. We want a course that kind of evokes a feeling of Rainer course. And then um, you say, well, I think this is going to, we need to redo the greens. We need to redo all the bunkers. We need to redo all the tees. We need to cut down some trees. I think that's going to cost around $3 million. And they say, well, that's a little bit more than we wanted to spend. Why don't you think about it and we'll get together in a couple weeks? And so we go out on the course again, and they're getting grabbed by the sleeve and pull over here and look at this. This is what we got to do. This is a perfect setting for this. And we get back in afterwards, and they say, um, uh, have you been able to fix your budget at all? And I said, well, no, when I look at it, and, and we're not doing anything um, ridiculous. We're not moving 100,000 yards of dirt on a hole. To fix it, we're, we're reworking the greens and the surrounds and the bunkers, and and I, I just and I'm, I'm I'm kind of getting into. I just uh, I've looked. I don't know how to do it. I, I I don't think. And they all start laughing. They say, "Forget about it. We're, we're going to spend three million dollars. If you need more, we'll spend more than that." And so then then I said, "Well, you know, I have I don't have any shapers of my own. I work. I have a limited number of contractors that I." Bid jobs too, and that's how I'd like to do it here. And they they didn't say, well, we've got a local guy who does athletic fields, and he <laughs> thinks he could do a good job. They didn't say that. So so look, here's what it was. It was a nice piece of property. They wanted to go with a Rainer, a leaning. Well, I mean, what else? What else? I mean, is am I going to say no to that? They felt they could do the budget that I thought was necessary, and out of the five contractors who I've done dozens of jobs with. I know I was going to work with one of them. Derek, I know I'm a New Englander, but, and, 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 and maybe I could say more positive things about myself, but they just eliminated my five excuses. The course should be good. Yeah. <laughs> and it, let me just tell you one more story. Uh, uh, there was a fellow there, Hayward Sullivan, who's a very well-known senior amateur golfer in the country. And um, he took me out the first day and he said, uh, I think we need, to, and this was kind of unusual this early in the process, the first time I was there. He says, I think we need to build two new holes in these wooded areas. And w this hole will go this way. And, and we walk through the woods and, and it was incredibly sound. And then uh, he just said, I can't figure out how to connect this green to this. I said, it's connected. Don't worry about it. And then the next hole, he said, I think it should go down here. And, and really, we ended up building those golf holes within 25 feet of his center line. So mm -hmm. I'm just pointing out, here's a job where they wanted to go in a direction that I like to go in. They were going to fund it adequately. I was going to be able to work with people I'm comfortable with. And I had a guy on the club who was showing me two absolute going to be successful. There's no question about it. Two new golf holes, so long as we detailed them to look like the other golf holes. So I've been really, yeah. really seriously fortunate to work in in um, largely great circumstances. Well, I mean, 
your work speaks for itself. People want to work with great people. You've had great relationships. We didn't even get the a chance to talk about Augusta Country Club. We'll have to save that for another time. But you were back great. there last summer and c- completed some important work for them. Yes, yes. Um, Very interesting so Do you know where you'll be this year? Do you have your whole schedule mapped out? Is that how it works? Well, last year was kind of uh, crept up on me. I, I was gone five days a week. And, and um, one thing in the recession... Um, it taught me that it was okay to be home more than one night a week and that I really enjoyed it. Uh, but, um, the five last summer were all repeat customers and I, um, there was no way I was going to say, no, why don't you hire somebody else? Uh, so far this summer, I know I'm going to be in two places. So far, uh, uh, next summer, I know I'm going to be in two places. Now I'm, I'm also working on a master plans for a couple other courses that should lead to big work, but I don't think it will happen by this coming season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if it does, that's great. And if it doesn't, that's great, too. I um, My desire to be away f- from home five days a week is not quite as strong as it used to be. Or my my uh, tall tall whatever you call it you know tolerance of that sure is uh, not as great as it used to be. Oh, and now you have a, a burgeoning golf game to pay attention to as well. Well, I'm gonna I'm you know the trouble is I I hit balls five days a week and then I don't pick up a club for three months. I'm I'm gonna try the sub to at least uh, not have the wild swing that happens uh, in the summer. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the thing about doing a, like restoration work. You're you're there while the course is under construction and growing in and so forth. But you, then you have to make a special trip back there to go play it. Yeah, you know, uh, um, uh, during I, I do winter projects. I've done winter projects like in Pasadena, California, and some of my uh, Florida projects have been in the winter. But um, usually, my work being based in New England is seasonal, and. Um, to tell you the truth, um, if I had winter work this winter that followed right after my five days a week on the road this summer, I would be one beat cookie. So well, I, it, it's good it, that you're taking uh, some, taking some um, R and R now. You just des- sounds it, like you deserve it. Yeah, and we've got a new two year old granddaughter, so that has affected my well, good. Schedule That's nice. A little bit, yeah. Well, I, I hope we can catch up in person at some point. Um, I'd love to tag around with you for a day or two and just well, we Derek, can keep these um, conversations going. Uh, seriously, um, um, six months a year here, six months a year in Maine. I'd love to, if you ever got, where are you from, Derek? I live up uh, just outside of Atlanta in Decatur. Please come north sometime and we'll play golf for a few days. And look, I won't punish you. I'll take you to somebody else's golf course for one of those days. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, is we have very, very good friends uh, who live in Hingham, and but we only visit them like in the winter time for some reason. So it's it's not golf season, but I'd love to see Black Rock for one. Black Rock is fun, and the owner is one of the nicest guys you could ever meet in your life. He's just really an, an, a very awesome guy. Brian, thanks so much for joining me. We'll talk again soon. And, and Derek, let me tell you something. You can tell I like talking about golf course design. I think everyone who listens to this will be able to tell that. Great. Oh, wow. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It's, talk about passion, enthusiasm, sincerity, intelligence. Brian Silva's got it all. And it was on full display during our wonderful two-hour conversation. 
to me, that was a fascinating and important conversation. One thing that I take away from that that I thought was particularly noteworthy is his comment on how golf designs for a long period of time, even, you know, maybe even his own in the early days when he was working with Jeff Cornish and Jeff Cornish's courses, that golf architecture was dummied down. I think that's a really important thing to think about. It goes back to the question of how much credit do you give the player? Are you going to pamper him? Are you just going to hold the hand of the golfer all around the golf course? Or are you going to challenge them and assume that that they can intellectually and physically find a way to get their ball to the hole, despite the fact that there are some really interesting or difficult or challenging questions out there in the fairway ahead of them? There was a period definitely in, in the middle of the last century when Golf design swung toward accommodation. It swung toward, uh, tried to swing toward fairness. And as Brian would tell you, golf is not a fair game. Uh, We do better as an art and as an industry, I think, when we pose, as Mike Clayton always says, interesting questions. And those questions can be difficult. Those questions can have a danger component to them. Uh, Let's give the golfer a little more credit than we used to and put put some ferocity out there. Put something that kind of scares them. Fear is elemental to golf. Fear stimulates. Stimulation is elemental to golf. And without serious hazards and without questions and complexity in golf holes and in golf architecture, there's no, there was no real fundamental stimulation. There's, no, there's nothing lasting or timeless in that. And I think we've gotten back to a really interesting and really healthy place now where most of the best courses that are made these days don't do that. They're putting scenarios out there in the landscape where the golfer has to analyze the situation, read the landscape, read the hazards, read the landform, and apply their own game and their own tactical approach to that particular hole. That's was something uh, Brian Silva's been advocating for for a long time. It was lost for a long time. Hopefully it's back now. And as he says, he hopes that golf architecture doesn't abandon those basic principles that have always animated the game. So, okay, enough of me talking. What a conversation. It's all right there. I want to thank Brian Silva for coming on the podcast and, and sharing his joy and his passion and his sincerity and, and modesty with us. I want to thank you for listening. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Look me up on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Feed the Ball. I want to thank the Sun Dogs. And until we get a chance to do this again, it will be very soon, I promise. Adios. Adios.